You're listening to Deeper Magic. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Deeper Magic Podcast. I am Peter Kapsner here with my daughter Anna, as always. And I'm saying that with a little wow. bit I'm saying that with a little bit of bitterness in my voice right now because of the guests that we also have in studio with us today. But why don't we just do the requisite say hi Anna? Hi, Anna. I was also going to say, like, you sound particularly bitter given that I drove all the way here and brought you coffee. You did. You brought me a really nice cup of coffee this morning. You actually brought our guests a really nice cup of coffee, too. So Mm -hmm. we should introduce Dr. Gary Stratton in the Deeper Magic studio. Indeed, a longtime friend of mine. And we have been doing a podcast series on a book that he's releasing called The Jesus Climb. And Gary, that's coming out in April. April of 2024. So it's, and so we have some supporting podcasts we've been doing on the different chapters that really get us into discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. And the last one that we did actually had to do with developing intimacy with Jesus in ways that transcend just sort of our knowledge and the statements that we can make about him. And, and in that, Anna sat in the room with us as we did that podcast and you guys have admired one another back and like I already feel like I don't even belong in this podcast because you you just need to know this Anna that at one point in the series in Jesus Climb he I referenced the fact that I was part of Deeper Magic and he said you have a problem you know that right and I said what's the problem Gary I mean you have a lot of problems yeah and <laughs> and, the, and then he went to this incredible patronizing place oh. patronizing patronizing I never yeah. know how to say it but it was both it was both patronizing and patronizing I think it's either. Yeah, well, it was it, it certainly felt like both like he was intentionally <laughs> heaping it on when he's like, I mean, you're fine. Mm-hmm. And it really was that sort of you're fine. That doesn't really mean it. it it's OK, Pat. Yeah, Pat. Totally. Yeah. And then he said, but Anna, spectacular. Thank you. I'm deeply honored. Yeah. And so now you've been listening to the conversation Mm -hmm. that we just had about intimacy and spirituality and thought, well, why don't we just kind of talk our way through this? Because I think one of the things that so many people struggle with in American Western versions of faith, uh, European Western versions of faith, Mm -hmm. is they don't really know how to experience or be within God's presence. They don't know when it's reliable and trustworthy. So I would say that most of us are in relationship with their ideas about God, at least a lot of people that I know are. Yeah. And but they're not actually in relationship with God. So as you sort of listen to the podcast and you were texting me and some questions along the, yeah, along the way was. too. But as you listen to what we just did, I watched some things ignite in in both of you, even in this conversation, because this has been part of your journey for mm-hmm. sure, is that your desire for God has not been because somebody has explained God to you so articulately. It's been no. from a different angle. Yeah. Well, and first of all, I just want to say that it's really weird to be sitting in the room with you because I've kind of had you in my head as this like mythological being for a while now. Because every time that my dad brings you up, I'm like, there's no way my dad is friends with someone that cool. Like there's no, there's no shot. And so I've been, it's like, it's very weird to actually be interacting with you as a human being. I'm like, this uh, well, is Well, I'm just bizarre. not that cool. That's just so you lower your expectations. Oh, well, and, and maybe before we start, because Gary better tell the story quickly about how we got to be such good friends together. Mm-hmm. You, you bring it up in the podcast. It's so worth it, but we've had a long-standing friendship, and you've hired me in different positions, and then left me at the altar, like when you did that. <laughs> like literally, Anna, he brought me, dragged me over to Bethel University, and then he left for Hollywood to do some important ministry for this period. Seems of time. fair. Anyway, but, so before we get into further questions, Anna, you towards him, Gary, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background, and then a little bit about how we met too? Yeah, I mean, uh, called towards student ministry pretty early in my career, and I, no matter what I've done. Susan, my life has been about loving student, loving and teaching students and those who love and teach students, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's in Hollywood or in China or at secular universities or Christian universities, whether it's campus pastor or a VP of students or now an academic dean. I just tell people, I just, these are just my different ways that I tent make to live out my calling uh, to minister to students and, you know, being an academic dean pays better than yeah. being a campus pastor. Yeah. So I'm, and, you know, here I am. And when you reference Sue, Sue has been on uh, Deeper yes, Magic yes, before. Yeah. So I know that that's been a point of contention for the two of you too, is that this <laughs> mythological creature, according to Anna, finally makes his way onto the Deeper Magic podcast. Oh, yeah. But but you, you are awfully cool. And I think that was reflective of the experience that we had at Crown College together yes. with just the way that you approached me after a certain kind of conversation. Yeah, where you tried met. to talk the college president out of the college's long-term tradition of teetotaling and by convincing him, you know, that's not really what the New Testament is doing there. And he was, no one had ever challenged him. I don't remember the story this way. No one had ever challenged him. He was just, I didn't know what to do. And both Sue and I, it was was a new faculty orientation. 
And both Sue and I look at him and I say, we got to get to know this guy. <laughs> so. Yeah, that was I, I, the way you tell the story is not how I remember it. But I think I might have blacked out for a second <laughs> when I went to challenge the president on the drinking policy. You were possessed policy. by the Holy Spirit. Yes, I, yes. I was indeed. Yeah. All right. So we just had this conversation, as I said, about uh, intimacy. And Anna, to whatever extent you have participated in this faith journey in your 21-ish now years or whatever, mm-hmm. it's almost always been along the unreliable means of the experience of God versus, you know, the important ways of knowing God, which is how what you can say about him. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> There's yeah. a good concise enlightenment uh, hubris statement. Yeah, yes. yes. So now you guys <laughs> can talk about it for a while now that I just set it up. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, no, I think with my faith journey, it's always been much more the instinctual, emotional kind of like mystical doesn't quite feel like the right word, but mm-hmm. just that. But more, it is the right word. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just feel like the connotations of that yeah, word I agree. are very yeah. different. Um, yeah, but just that much more abstract way of thinking about faith and about my relationship with God, where I'm like, this isn't necessarily something that I could put down in a textbook. And if I did, it would be about a thousand pages too long and completely unreadable. Um, and so I don't know. And it and it's interesting because I think you and I have had conversations about this, Dad, off the podcast, but I don't know that I've ever actually said this in a recording before. Um, but the thing that I always really struggle with with the idea of theology in terms of as it shapes how we think about God is the idea for me that like that's another person's way of thinking about God. Like that might not necessarily be God breathed, God given, like this is what relationship with God looks like, hard and fast, set in stone. This is another, like, okay, I, the first word that came into my head was fallen, and that's not it at all. But, like, this is another human being, finite and corruptible to a sense. But, again, that's not the right word, where it's just the idea of, like, we can be wrong about things. We don't know everything. We are finite. And and people are building their entire faith journey off of this one person's perception of what it means to be in relationship with God And that's something that has always really, really bothered me. And so I think theology can be a really helpful tool in trying to discern what you do or what you don't believe. But the thing that I take real issue with is when people are like, this is what it means to follow God. Um, And so that's why a lot of my faith journey comes more from the emotional instinctual side of it rather than the intellectual theological side. Because I find it's a lot easier to pull from different ideas in theology or different ways of reading and interpreting the Bible to match the things that I see over and over again about who God is and my base understanding about how God is a God of love and everything else has to line up with that rather than I have to leave out parts of the Bible, I have to leave out parts of my experience with God in order to fit into a theological idea. No, I like that. I think that's the way the church developed their quote-unquote theology. They had a God experience. I think that's Israel Mm -hmm. experience. They had a God experience that they then tried to figure out Mm-hmm. How to how to understand how to interpret, um, and uh, they kept developing and thinking. I mean, what is being said in the Pentateuch and what's being said in the Prophets? They don't contradict one another, but it's a yeah. much deeper understanding of what's going on with God, what goes on in the Psalms and the writings and things that are more wisdom literature, mm-hmm. taking things completely not contradictory but deeper understandings of things. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am going to fulfill all this stuff. I'm not abolishing any of this, but let me tell you, it goes a whole lot deeper than you <laughs> yeah. think it does uh, in so many you know, profound ways that uh, it goes, you know, it's not enough to just not want to murder people. I mean, I mean, <laughs> hatred is, mm-hmm. is a bit, taking all those things deeper and then uh, to take them deeper, even with the, uh, when, when the Holy Spirit comes, that you're going to have this encounter with God that's... Uh, in the, the same thing that just a handful of people, prophets, priests, and kings had in the Old Testament, ah, I'm going to pour that out over everybody mm-hmm. is going to have this kind of experiential knowledge of God. And that's, you know, that's what births the church. That's what yeah. births the, you know, and what's bursting through the entire book of Acts is this, this God encounter that they keep trying to use the, the, the filter of Jesus' teachings and the Old Testament to understand at a deeper and deeper level. Hmm. That's where... Theology does good work for us where we yeah. admit that it's our trying to find words to explain what's happened to us in relationship mm-hmm. to God. It's when we, in the second generation, we start to make it restrictive. Yeah, and say, exactly. And you need to have the exact same experience and say exactly the same words and do exactly the same things we did. And then it becomes oppressive. Yeah, mm. exactly. Well, and part of that too, as well as we've talked a lot about um, the idea of God as a verb 
Mm. And I think we have covered briefly some of the idea of the name of God, where it's the I was, am, will be, what I was, am, will be, in the sense that the name of God is literally a verb. And so the idea that one person's experience of God could be put into a concrete idea that then applies to all people for the rest of time, I think is doing a huge disservice to both ourselves and to the nature of God, in the sense that if God is a verb and we are created in his image, then we are also verbs. And so our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with God and our relationship with others is dynamic and evolving and ever-changing. And so one person's experience can't necessarily hold up for centuries and centuries of theology and apply to everybody. Hmm. So, um, and I want, because I want to go into that um, much more deeply in terms of like, what are some of the reliable ways in which that happens? But I'm going to play the old angry Oh, fun. White man, Protestant, academic person, right now. Okay, so like I'm this like, is like role, this always, is role, right? yeah, this yeah, is typecasting. You are in my name. yard right now, and I'm ready to get off you my out, lawn. Okay? So, so right He's now, been like that since he was 12. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So in channeling that, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna say, but, and then my example is, I remember when I was growing up at, at a certain time that the mom of one of my good friends found herself in some sort of grocery store. And in the grocery store, she saw a man that was not her husband down the aisle of the grocery store. And she made the claim, well, God told me that I'm actually supposed to marry this guy. And she literally left my buddy mm-hmm. uh, my, and, and her husband, his dad, behind because God told her something. So this, so this is the angry white man Protestant response that says, uh, you cannot prioritize your experience of God. We have to have these containers that say certain things to, to hold it. So, and understand, I'm not yeah. sympathetic towards that view, but I'm just thinking like people listening sometimes probably have actually been hurt or wounded by people who say I'm having a certain experience of God that is divergent from anything that has happened in the past. So maybe I'll ask you, Gary, how have you handled that? Because this is a lot of your field and and I love how the different ways and different faith traditions you explore that's way outside of Western Christianity that lead us into the kind of life that Anna already has begun experiencing. But just let's get this objection out of the way. Well, it's a it's a good one, and it's an important one. Um, I mean, there is a reason why we have this uh, record of the experience of the people of God that we can use to constantly correlate and discern what we're what's going on with us, and that that is an important function of it. And it's important that um, we don't allow any. Uh, how can I say this? Anyone's experience uh, to kind of go move so far outside what people have experienced in general from mm-hmm. God uh, to go, and you know, God told you to murder that person, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not. Because, and uh, what the early uh, Christians in North America would say was, well, I just need to look at three things. I mean, is was this forbidden in scripture? Like I have enough to go back. The experience of the church is this ever ever forbidden? Well, divorce. You know, yeah, just divorcing somebody for right. no, for a random reason that's forbidden in scripture. That's an easy one. And the Crusaders clearly did not read enough scripture to realize they shouldn't be killing <laughs> right. people. Oh, so. yeah. Well, yeah, that's we're going to come to that. Yes, oh, all, right. So. <laughs> all right, all yeah. right. So continue yeah. on. So that's yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. The bias we bring to our understanding of things. Yeah. Uh, but then the second question is: Does this, you know, is there something like this in Scripture? Well, not in this case. But you know, if I tell when I'm talking to students about this, if God, you to- came to me and said, "God told me that I should dress in my underwear and lay down in front of cha- front of chapel uh, every day of this semester," <laughs> I cannot categorically tell you God did not tell you to do that <laughs> <laughs> because He did tell somebody to do something like that in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got to leave leave open the possibility that this was God. Hmm. Uh, and then third thing, and this, of course, this takes more time and discernment, but what is the fruit of this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's the real question. You know, what it happens as, in you and what happens in the people you interact with as a result of this? Mm-hmm. Is the fruit good or bad? Sometimes you can ask that question right in the moment, because mm-hmm. I normally can tell whether God has spoken to me in some degree of direction when I respond negatively to it. Um, when God gives direction, it's not normally to tell you to do something you should have already known to do. Mm-hmm. It's to do is to apply his teachings in some way that you would not have come to on your own, mm-hmm. and and normally you wouldn't have come to on your own because your self interest would have prevented you from seeing it. So I'm one time in uh, seminary, spending almost all my last money, Susan, my last money to go buy my books, walking past a student just sitting on a picnic bench uh, at Biola University, and suddenly God unmistakably saying to me, "Meet his need." 
And and my immediate response was, of all the people, I mean, I've got, you know, I might have a hundred bucks left in my checking account. Why would I? And I'm like, it's financial, isn't it? And he's like, yep, yep, it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, yeah. as a matter of fact, yeah. Uh, yep. So I went in and I sat down next to him and it turns out he was a student visiting from India and he'd lost all his money in a weird kind of situation. And I, he's just, I was just sitting here waiting for someone that God to send someone to buy me my books. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, eh, God answered your prayer, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. See, and I, I, so I think now that we have that objection off the table, right? <laughs> like the, the, I think that the, the risk to, there, there's way more risk to not trying to cultivate this kind of faith with God yes. than there is in just poop who, I mean, if we just reject it altogether, there's tremendous, I think way bigger risk to our faith journey. So I, I mean, I'm curious, you, you've heard a bit of Anna's experience. I mean, I, I would love, is there a compelling figure in history that you feel like, gosh, this person really invited us into reliable ways to begin to experience God? Wow, there's so many. I mean, that's why I believe in studying church history and studying global church history and global experience, because yeah, I often feel like history and other cultures are like the 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 lenses we need to put on to kind of see around our own biases and misunderstandings of scripture that we've inherited from our own tradition and our own culture and our own experiences. And uh, you know, once you start getting to, and that's why I do like the word mystical, because there is this Christian mystical tradition. That is deep and uh, profound, and was foundational to the church, both east and west, till at least the Enlightenment, um, and that we've just kind of blithely chucked aside. And you know, unfortunately, the Enlightenment and the Reformation were very much part of the same general movement of man is the major, intimate man, not women. Man is the measure of all things, and <laughs> yeah. we're going to arrive at the truth, you know, through, purely through the brute force of our mind. And it was a horrible mm -hmm. direction for us. And so, to be able to look back at a Teresa of Avila, a John of the Cross, of a Julian of Norwich, um, and these deep and profound encounters with God and the time to reflect and think and write on them, because lots of people are having these experiences, but they kept a record hmm. of, of what they did. So we can kind of look back in time at what's going on. We just talked in the podcast about Brother Lawrence, who learned to encounter God doing the dishes better than he did in a prayer mm -hmm. cell, um, that, that he found God in that way better. Those those ones that have kind of survived through time uh, and God's preserved for us, Julian of Norwich's revelations of Jesus that she spent her entire life writing to entrusted them to a friend who took them to a monastery who kept it in their library for 300 years mm -hmm. before somebody found it and published it. Yeah. And now it's just this incredible blessing to the church. Hmm. Maybe the time wasn't right. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord's economy is in that. But we need to listen to these people that have gone before us, to these uh, these spiritual pioneers, high mountain climbers, and say, they're showing me an aspect of what it means to follow Jesus that uh, is not part of my daily experience. Yeah. And I think with all of that, when you were talking about kind of chucking out the mysticism of it, because with the scientific revolution and the enlightenment and all of that, I had the opportunity to study that about a year ago this time, um, actually in one of the required Bethel courses, we, we covered all of this. And it was so interesting to see because the church had had this period of being really mystical and really kind of intuitive and emotional in their faith. And then it was around when the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution started that they were like, oh, we were wrong about some things. And because we were wrong about some things, now we're starting to lose our power. Yes. And so instead of trying to admit the fact that we were wrong about some things and be correctable and change course and try and work with our people and be honest in, in who we are and what we've been doing and how we're going to go moving forwards, um, they, they chucked out the mysticism and tried to just stick to the science piece of it so that they could hold on to their power. Yeah. And it's really no different than the impulse to cancel. Yeah, like exactly. I can't. Yeah, I, I don't have an argument. I don't have an explanation for. It. I'm just going to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say this is emotional stuff. This is subjective stuff. This is womanly stuff. I mean, <laughs> this is uh, black religion. This, I mean, just any way that we can do to kind of push it um, mm -hmm. away from us, so I don't have to deal with the experience. I don't have to say, wait a minute, they're experiencing something of God that's in my Bible. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying, wait a minute, teach me how I can experience this thing, I'm going to drag the Bible down to my level of experience and cast everything out. I constantly hear academics say, we only need the Bible. And I said, well, are you going to follow the Bible? Because in the Bible, every person <laughs> we have is, has this intimate relationship with God yeah. was, that is personal and directive. And so you're going to you're going to throw that out. You're not following the Bible. Yeah. I, I said I just this week in class, I said that, you know, we have this sort of 
almost meditative chant that is, well, we're just going to follow the Bible for everything, then like you said. And and I'm somebody who do, does hold a very high value of the that the Bible has been inspired and that it really is different in in a form of literature than any other literature that we have because that's the case. But at the same time, nearly every decision that we have in our life in general is completely outside of the realm of the Bible. Meaning that, you know, I, I'll ask the students, so is the person that you want to marry, is their name going to be in the Bible? You know, how do you, like what sort of job do you want to take? And, and it just sort of confronts this reality. And, and I actually watched you re- react viscerally earlier when Gary used the word communion. And so we we have lived in a long-standing season where we chucked aside the communion table from the center of the gathering of faith. Yes. We replaced it with the pulpit because of the sola scriptura to preach the word of God. And I think but that was that, also rationalism. At yeah, work. <laughs> it, it for sure was. And and so I think I'm just curious, what has communion been for you along the way? When if you're going to react that way, because that is a, a place that's supposed to not be just oh, I'm going to remember the best I can that I'm grateful that Jesus died on the cross. It's supposed to be something within the presence. Yeah, I have a a friend of mine who. Um, I got this idea from this is not my own idea necessarily. Um, But I think for a lot of people, myself included, for a really long time, um, I really understood communion to be the thing where it's like renewing your membership to God kind of thing. (laughs) Where it's like you've got the angry God and you've got the Jesus who died on the cross as like the shield between you and your sins. And every once in a while you got to like eat the blood or eat the body, drink the blood. Strengthen that shield again. Right. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was kind of this weird thing where it is just the remembering or it is just the strengthening of the shield where you're like, okay, I'm like recommitting myself to this. You don't get to smite me this time. Like. And apparently you only need to do that on the first Sunday of every month. Apparently, like, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> with, I appreciate with a very it. limited amount of blood, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And I appreciate like a monthly membership thing. That's nice. But like, you know, um, and I was talking to one of my friends about it a while ago when she was doing some really, really beautiful research into um, Jesus as both the high priest and the sacrifice and all of what was undone when he was on the cross and I can't remember if this was part of her PhD or if this was just preliminary work that she was doing leading into her PhD, and now it's more about other things. Um, But she did some really beautiful research into all of that. And the understanding that I walked away with from that conversation is the idea of it's it's sort of like a check-in in a way, um, where it is this idea of like, okay, this relationship is so important to me. I am in this moment choosing to invest time and energy into this relationship. This is a moment where I am confronting the ways in which I have not engaged in this relationship in the way that I have wanted to. And I think that, that that's the piece that's so important to me because um, I've I've heard so many people talk about like, oh, and I felt convicted and oh, I did whatever. And it's like, the thing that I want to make so clear is that at least in my own experience, that has never been God coming to me and being like, you didn't do this or you did these things or what are you doing? Why are you like this? And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's never that. It's me having this moment where I'm like, I have not experienced anything but constant love in this relationship and I have not upheld my side of that. Mm. And it's always me realizing that and then coming to this place of like, oh, I'm so sorry, and I'm going to recommit to this. And this is a moment where I get to face that. And in the moment of taking communion, it's actually, it's not me apologizing, it's God forgiving me taking communion. And so it is that moment of me actually choosing to accept the forgiveness, not me offering the apology. Oh, yes. what, What I hate about everything that you just said is that it just gives more credibility to Gary liking you way more than, than me. Like, like if this was, if we were actually on a YouTube live stream right now or whatever, watching Gary react to you, like give an incredible theology of communion that I think is far more invitational and consistent with what Jesus was up to. I mean, I can't imagine what would all be recaptured, Gary, if that's how we as individuals then celebrated that together in that way, not just one person at a time, but all of us were coming to the communion table in the way Anna described. Yeah. Yeah. And the the tradition that I uh, eventually became part of and that Johnson University is part of was birthed out of a radical act of disobedience where uh, Barton Stone and other uh, Presbyterians in uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, uh, were and 
became friends with some Baptists and some Methodists who were all trying to reach people. And each one of, yeah, <laughs> each one of those traditions was uh, saying you can't celebrate communion in each other's churches. And the, and so Stone said, "Well, I got a big a lot of land around my church. Why don't we just all have a big communion service, all of us together, as an act of of unity, re- obedience, yeah, disobedience. Um, and it won't be in the church, so no one can." <laughs> Complain on a technicality. On a technicality, and twenty thousand people showed up. Yeah. Wow. And God came down in the sense of His presence in the midst of this this radical act of obedience of where this is about Jesus. Mm -hmm. This is about relationship. It's not about us. It's not about inclusion exclusion. This is this table where Jesus says, "Come and eat." Come yeah. in relationship with me. Come be part, partaker of my life, a drinker of my blood. Yeah. They encounter my love. And that movement became so powerful that it tremendously influenced all of North America mm. and what became known as the Second Great Awakening. Another thing I know that two of you share is your love for story. And, uh, and I, think, I was just going to bring up I know, Lewis. I, just, right? and so I, I think it would be, and, and whatever context you want to bring them up too, Anna, but I think one of the questions for the two of you is, I think when we move from a faith of just ideas and theology to be defended, when you start seeing yourself that you're part of a much bigger story, I think actually then reading story, even if it's not like fully related to kingdom story or even at all related to kingdom story, it just it wakes up my soul to remember that we're in story. Just yes. any kind of story does it. And you two are both like huge story lovers. And you mentioned C.S. Lewis, but mm-hmm. I would love for both of you to just reference some stories that wake you up, whether they're Christian stories or not. Yeah. Yeah, well, really quickly, my thing about C.S. Lewis and just my last thing about communion as well is um, I think with the idea of forgiveness, I'm, I was even realizing as I was saying it that that idea has been so warped within the church in so many ways where even the idea of like God offering forgiveness kind of comes with this flip side of God being like, and you need it. Yeah, like you yeah, have messed yeah. up, you are bad and wrong and whatever. Even if the forgiveness is constantly offered, even if there's just this weird underbelly to it. And I think the thing that I was thinking about with C.S. Lewis in terms of bringing up this analogy is it really is, it's the dwarves at the table in the last battle. Yeah. When they're in the next Narnia, they're there already. They, all they have to do is look up and see it. And there is nothing in the environment around them that is like, look up. There is nothing around them that is like smiting them for not looking up. It's just there and it's open and available and it is entirely up to them whether or not they look up and accept it. And that's how I feel when I'm taking communion where Mm -hmm. this forgiveness, there's no expectation on it. There's no like weird underbelly of anger or lightning crackling or whatever around it. It's just, this is here and out of that moment when finally I reach the point where I can see that for myself, Mm. then I'm able to look up and accept that forgiveness. But that's all coming from an internal battle of me feeling like I need forgiveness, but also the inability to accept forgiveness um, rather than God being like, you're awful, but I'm going to forgive you anyways. Yeah. Well, and, and I think you learning that through story is mm-hmm. way different than as a dad. If I would have said, Anna, by the way, when you come to the you know table, yeah. forgiveness yeah. is there, blah, 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 and teach you sort of, you know, through that lens, when you're reading that kind of concept through the lens of the dwarves in the last battle, that again, just, it speaks to the power of story to, we're actually in a really similar one. Yeah. And that, I know, like your whole life has been story and Hollywood and reading story and participating in all of it. I mean, I've got to believe that it wakes you up on some level too to to do our faith through that lens. Absolutely, and as the more we understand uh, how our brains work, pretty much as meaning making machines, mm-hmm. uh, but they make their meaning through story, which in some ways is just a a selective um, narrative out of a variety of events. But that's actually what's going on all the time. We're always creating this. So the stories we experience, the stories that we live and the stories that we watch or read, um, they begin to shape this inner narrative of, of who we are, who our identity is, who I see myself as. If you ask somebody to really describe their identity, they'll always end up telling a story. And that's just the, you know, the way we're put together. So it it becomes incredibly important. And to recognize that, you know, for me, the transition, the profound moment in my life, when I flipped out from Believing that God loved me because Jesus died for me. Yeah. As opposed to really, no, Jesus died for me 
because God loves mm. me. I mean, that's the that's the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Wow. But I had it completely flipped. Or the you're talking about the forgiveness side of this. Well, God forgives me because Jesus died for me. He says, no, Jesus died for me because God forgives me. Jesus is extending forgiveness long before he went to the cross. Yeah. Um, that it was this ollie ollie ensign free. It was, you know, come and be, come and partake, come and be part of the kingdom. And to break down this very dysfunctional worldview. And how did he do it? He used it. Oh, story again and again and again, parable mm-hmm. again and again and again. Uh, not going on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, but, but, saying it in a way that kind of works out of our our rational objections and works around it and gets us to the our full experience to be able to say that's the truth that resonance that happens within us when we see something that's true mm. yeah yeah and dad when you were talking about the idea of being part of a greater story first of all there's a quote that i really love from one of my favorite fiction podcasts where he says death is only the end if you assume the story is about you which i love (laughs) i love that quote so much Mm. um but the other piece of all of that is that it wasn't until i started genuinely believing in a god of love and the kind of radical love that didn't come with any underbelly of anger or guilt or anything it was just only purely love all the time, which is such a like crazy thing to try and wrap my head around. But it was only once I started coming at my face from that perspective that I was like, oh, this might be a story that I might want to be a part of. Yeah. Like this might be a story that I want to tell. And and we talked about in a previous episode um the idea of storytellers' responsibility and how if you're gonna tell a story, you're trying to teach somebody something and you have to be really, really careful what it is that you're teaching them, how you leave them in that story, how you lead them through that story. And I frankly, I don't feel like the church has done a good job taking accountability for storytellers' responsibility because I mean, it took me until I was 18 and really like 19 or 20 at that point through some really wonderful people in my life who told me the right kinds of stories, the the stories that would help me see that it was a dragon, right, with Eustace Scrub. Um, but it, it wasn't until I was told some of those stories that I was like, oh, this might actually be something that I want to give my life to. Mm, and yeah. I spent my whole life in the church. No, and it, it's so easy to miss. I used to uh, travel around doing a workshop called How Hollywood Preaches the Gospel Better Than the Church. Ooh. Okay, uh, I want to hear about that. That's well, awesome. Well, it was, you know, the, the very foundational idea to it was simply that, you know, the point of every story that's told in Hollywood uh, is that uh, the story is not about the plot. The mm-hmm. story is how the plot forces the main the protagonist to change. Yeah. And the, the more obstacle, complications, conflicts that they, they encounter, the greater the transformation. And mm-hmm. it's either transformation that's bringing out something that's already there uh, a steadfast main character, or it's about bringing about a transformation of something that's never been there before. Well, that's James 1. Consider yourself, uh, rejoice when you encounter trials. It's Romans yeah. 5. I mean, this is, it's the journey to the cross. It's all about, my life is supposed to be hard so I can be transformed in the image of Christ, which is the exact opposite of what the church preaches, which is come to Jesus and your life will be easier. Mm. Yeah. Your marriage will be better. Your ch- your child care will be better. Your <laughs> Your sex life will be better. You're, you'll make more money. You'll, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, sometimes things, things do happen. Yeah. But yeah. that is not the norm. And that's certainly not the stories we see in Scripture. I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, the, the one time I was in an institutional church experience where there was an electricity about being there on the weekend was, mm. I think, directly related to the fact that God's Spirit had moved in a certain kind of way among a person and a staff that they saw themselves as participating in a really critical moment in sort of Western Minneapolis American story. It, it was a situation where so many churches were, I would say, living by like the letter of the law. They were living by more sort of outward looking behavioral sorts of management principles. And there was no yes. grace being experienced by anybody, all of that. And there was this catalytic moment where the pastor sort of woke up to the idea that God's grace and mediating presence comes uh, unmerited to us. We don't have to do a bunch of behaviors to sort of activate mm. it. And it just catalytically sort of moved people back into a faith relationship. But what happened from that is that they didn't try to then manage it and they didn't try to like strategic vision it. They didn't try to make a plan for the next year about what this was going to look like. The pastor literally would get done preaching on Sunday and by Monday he would be saying things like, okay, God, where do we go next? Mm. And the staff began to be, where do we go next? And, and in a story, 
the protagonist, whoever part of the story, they don't know for sure where they're going next. Never. They're getting shaped in that part <laughs> of the process. And it was unbelievably energizing to come to church on a Sunday, then experiencing the next that God had led them during that week compared to most churches that I'm a part of these days, they sort of go away for a week and they plan their entire year of services in that. And they get all of the creative arts teams involved and they get all the planning involved. And like once that whole machine is in motion, you can't deviate from that machine at all. You can't leave Macedonia like they might have in the book of Acts or whatever. There's just, it's almost impossible to follow in the story when you already have the next year of story story already told. And I think it just takes all of the energy out of the beauty of following in the unknown and not for sure knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, I think learning to follow the Holy Spirit as a community is something we've completely lost, yeah. except for rare aspects like this, because we've kicked out this entire uh, intuitive knowledge, experiential knowledge side of Christianity. I mean, sometimes it just makes no sense. I mean, mm. Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where... They will, and they're going to take us, you know, take us where it wants to take us. I mean, it made no sense for Philip to leave this massive work of revival among the Samaritans and uh, go stand by this road. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, yeah. No idea that it was going to open up this, you know, incredible opportunity or they're just worshiping. It's a normal practice, them worshiping the Lord, prayer and fasting. And the Holy Spirit says, doesn't say how the Holy Spirit said, yeah, you send Paul and Barnabas out the thing that they've been itching to do. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, we need those kind, that sense of expectation. Yeah, we do. Well, and, and I'm just, now I'm mindful of the fact that we only have about 10, maybe 15 minutes left with Gary before he's yeah. actually got to catch a plane. We did this podcast Which kind of. Which is wild to me. Yeah, we, we did this a little bit off the cuff. We didn't know we were going to be doing it until maybe last night we started wondering. But what I know about Gary is he has always been in the position of grading other people. And and I think like, you know, Mr. Practicing the Presence, Mr. Mm -hmm. He's got all these ideas. I mean, you should hear, you should read his book when it comes okay. out. It's filled with all of these really practical, hands-on, tangible ideas about how you can get into the mysterious presence of God. I think, I think Gary should like think through two or three things from his book and then we grade whether... You know, like, like, how I do we grade? Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so Gary, we're just gonna, you know, as Anna and I just kind of keep talking, you have to think of like two or three things from your book that are like practicing the prayer, these different things, right? To get us engaged with the realities of God. And then Anna and I will, will each grade you. Oh, man, you're a rat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did have a thing really quickly when you were talking yep. about plot and character in Hollywood and how the plot is the thing that forces the character to change. Um, one of my favorite authors, one of the things that's one of the things that she has talked about is the idea of the external plot versus the internal plot, yes. where the external plot is the actual series of events or the motivation that keeps the story moving. And the internal plot is why we read the book. Yes. It's why we love it. It's the characters. It's the interactions. It's all the stuff in between. Um, and so the analogy that she uses is that the external plot is the coat hook. And the internal plot is the coat. Um, That's fantastic. And so I feel like part of what the church has done is we've just been working with the coat hook yes. and not the actual uh, coat that's itself. Because we've been working with the external plot this whole time, but we've kind of chucked out the internal plot of the mysticism of the intellectual, um, sorry, not the intellectual, the intuitive and the emotional side of all of that. And so we were like, we've got the coat hook. That's good enough. That's going to keep us moving. And and did away with this. I love that. Whole yeah. No, that's beautiful. Uh, you just oh. <laughs> summarized my entire theology in film class right there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes, All right, you so, can use that analogy. Yes, so I will. I'm going to wear one of your coat, like one of your suggestive coats now, Gary. You know, we're, we're, maybe we'll give you a grade. We'll figure it out. But kidding aside, you do have some very reliable ways in which people who maybe are unfamiliar with the idea of starting to engage with God in more of a relational, trustworthy, intuitive kind of way. They're super helpful. I know you do them with your students and everything. Is there, are there a couple you can give us? Well, I mean, the one we just talked about is probably the one that comes to mind, that there's a filling um, and an emptying element to uh, encountering God. What does that even, yeah, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the one way is to seek to um, not just have our eyes run over Scripture like it's information, but to yeah. seek to enter into um, what's happening in Scripture. Uh, so uh, if you do it with others, it's called Lectio Divina, but you can do it on your own. Um, where I, you know, deliberately, deliberately sit, and I try to take the Mary of Bethany perspective, or, you know, call him teacher because that's who he is, teacher. Uh, I want to sit at your feet. I'm going to listen to what you say so that I can live this out, you know, in my life. And uh, it's often best to start with um, more of a narrative passage because it's kind of easier to enter into, but to, and not a very long one, mm -hmm. um, but to read through it. Uh, 
It helps to do it aloud so we aren't as distracted. If you can imagine Jesus sitting there telling it to you and even personalizing something that's better, sometimes I literally put a chair right there and pretend Jesus is sitting mm-hmm. in it. Sometimes I literally sit at the feet of that chair if I'm really getting really distracted. But to to work through it three times, but to seek to enter into it, like, okay, we'll take the story of Mary and Martha, that they've invited Jesus, this great rabbi, to come, you know, speak, and he goes and sits in the rabbi chair, mm-hmm. uh, which every home would have, every Jewish home would have for the traveling sages to come. And uh, any other setting, Mary and Martha would have had to be in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is their home. And you see this... Uh, Mary, you know, just imagine something. You're you're pushing your way past these men, mostly, <laughs> who have the privilege, you know, of saying, and you're going and putting your seat literally right at his feet. Um, the the alternative translation of it is both Mary and Martha are sitting at his feet, mm-hmm. and Martha gets up because she's distracted, which I think is almost even better to feel yeah. Martha, you know, get up, you know, to go do the expected role, and and Mary just deciding to say the feeling the pressure. You know, not just of my own pressure to perform, but others' pressure to perform. And there was nothing Martha was doing that was wrong, but mm-hmm. it was uh, it was out of order. Yeah. It, it, was, it was misordered that you had somebody that could just hand him a few loaves and fishes and he could have given a great banquet. And you're giving up this incredible opportunity to sit at his feet. And to, uh, But what did that smell like? What did that feel like? What did, mm. what did it look to sit there and look up at Jesus', look at Jesus face, to hear his words? And it's amazing how much, because our brains are storytelling, mm-hmm. and the same way you can sometimes go into a dream and remember things in the dream that you didn't remember before, you can go into a text and begin to see things that you'd never seen before. Um, sometimes they're extra biblical. They're just helping you to imagine what's happening. But sometimes they're things that, well, they're, they're true. They're aspects. They're in insights. So just do just filling your mind in that way can be incredibly experienced. I've almost never done that, especially when I do it in community, where there hasn't been some sense of some real specific application. Mm. This, you need to attend to this or that. The, the complete opposite of that um, is to seek to pray in a way that's more emptying. That now I'm not going to use my brain. Um, I'm still probably using my imagination, but I'm not going to use my a logical, linear, codifying language center of my brain. Uh, I'm going to try to enter into the story as it exists in this moment. Mm. Um, and so I go out, sit on my porch, and is what, which is right by a river, which is a great analogy. And Cynthia Borgo is taught, you know, mm-hmm. imagine yourself falling into that river, and that river is the love of God, and drifting down into that love and finding a rock at the bottom that you can hold onto and feeling the current of that love. So that's just an imaginative way to do it, but just to seek to be fully presenced by this torrent of love that's coming eternally from the Trinity, mm. that beckoning us to enter into that. I mean, I think that's why creation was there, because the Trinity desperately wanted to share, uh, because the Trinity is love, to mm. share this love with beings. And by the Spirit within me and by the, by the Spirit of God around me and the creation around me, to seek to be fully present to God's love. And one of two things happens. Sometimes there's this glimpse, you know, sometimes just for a moment, of this reality that's around us. We kind of press through the veil. Um, and sometimes nothing happens, and that's more often than not. And yet this, just that practice often leads to times during the day where I'm aware of God's presence with me mm. and within me in ways I wouldn't have been if I hadn't practiced that that morning. I, I don't know what you would grade that. That's that's unfortunately fairly solid. If, yeah, I'm, no, if, that's I'm, good. Yeah, if I'm being objective about <laughs> no, it no. the best that I can. Yeah, I know. Darn it. That, yeah. that didn't work out as planned at all. Well, and I think especially for me being the person that like people will give me prayer exercises or like ways to draw closer to God. And every single time I'm like, okay. And I kind of do the pat pat and I move mm. on with my life. Yes. Um, but I actually, I really love that idea. And I think that um, as you were talking, I was like, oh, that is something that I think would be really beneficial in my life is just taking those moments to practice that and and see where that takes me and look for the moments where I do push further into that. Um, yeah, but congratulations in terms of the grading situation. Yeah, I know. That's, that's one of like a handful of times that I'm like, no, I think I could actually do that. I think that would be helpful instead of patronizing. Well, and I think what was intriguing when you first gave that example, I've just... It, I know in my head and I've been taught that Jesus is teacher, like I get mm-hmm. it, but I, I think I so my default mode 
is always Jesus as Savior, risen Lord of the cosmos, having conquered everything. You know, that idea, but but to just sit and say, all right, you're my teacher, and I'm going to try to take in and dwell within the things that you're saying, That it's a little disruptive, number one. He almost always teaches me things that are different than how I understand the world around me, for sure. But I think it, that actually is a great invitation to enter into it. So, all right, we, we have enough time for one more, Gary. You have one more sort of idea practice thing that we can do. I mean, we've given you a lot of time right now. And wow, so, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've gotten an A, so you could get a C and come out of here with a B. Well, he's earned it. And also his podcast voice is very soothing. So uh, the two of you, I know, with my, with my <laughs> rah, rah, rah voice. So I know this is horrible. All right. So what do you have? Uh, well, the other one that comes to mind is, uh, it's just called palms up, palms down. Okay. It can be very visceral. You kind of have to teach people how to do it. So I'm going to actually have you do it because it's, oh, kin- okay. it's okay. very kinetic. Okay. So this we should describe thing. what we're doing since we don't have the video going in this Yeah. One. But so right just now sitting, we're you know, comfortably. On this one, if we ever have a video. <laughs> <laughs> but sitting comfortably and it helps, you know, if you can do a few cleansing breaths. It helps us become more present to the moment, gets the stress cycle to break. Um, and normally it takes more than one, but we just did one because we're limited time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's I don't really, know what you're talking about. Stress cycles, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> so, yes. But uh, there's normally two things that are functioning within us. And this comes with this idea of surrendering to love. We're always surrendering to love. It's, you know, we so, we go with joy to, to sell everything we have to buy the treasure of Jesus and his love yeah. in the field. Um, that there's the, uh, the palms open to turn your palms up and just to to sense the Lord's presence with us. Um, what I often have people, students do is hold their hands cupped as if, Jesus, I want you to just to fill my hands with your mm. love. And it's actually interesting that people sometimes can even identify yeah. what that feels like, what that looks like to them. And it's very different and very personalized. But it's just sit there and see if there's something, some sense of God's presence fills there. I mean, sometimes there literally is a sense of heat. Sometimes there literally is a sense of, of wind or coolness. Mm. But when you sense that, oh, there's this smell, to literally to take it and press it against your heart. And once again, it's very kinetic. And sometimes you're just doing it as an act of faith. <laughs> that mm. God's love is there and he wants me to experience it. Abba Father crying out within my heart. Um. And so in a normal, you know, discipline, we would probably do this for five to seven minutes, just Mm. sitting and waiting and letting people on their own as they do it. And then the other part of it um, is to turn your hands over. And sometimes you can start with this, but I think it's better to start with the hands up, with your hands closed now like fists. Mm -hmm. And saying, okay, Lord, what am I holding on to? Mm. It needs to be, my fists need to be open and dropped into your hands for your safekeeping. It can be incredibly freeing. You know, so much of our anxiety is control, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just releasing that control. Um, uh, I'm going to this conference um, and I've always brought a team to this conference. It's a diversity mm-hmm. conference. I'm a white male going, you know, old white male going to a diversity conference. And I go for a reason because old white males used to go and be willing to sit in the back and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always brought a team. I don't have a team this time. So I'm feeling kind of anxious about that. You know, who am I going to talk to? Who am, I, am I going to be alone? I, so I'm just dropping that into your hands. You, mm. t- you just take that. You just, I'll be a Joe McClatchy. I'll just go s- <laughs> sit in, yeah, s- go into, get into line and have you interact with whoever you want me to. Mm. Um, Peter, you got anything that you need to drop right now? Oh, wait, you're actually asking yeah, me to do that. Yeah, yeah, actually. Because that wasn't a, a fake example <laughs> yeah, for you. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I need to. Um, there, there's so much promise related to some ministry things that I would like to be a part of in the years ahead. And there's something in which I'm participating in my business that I believe can fund a lot of that to give us a lot of freedom and independence. And so I press pretty hard and hang mm-hmm. up pretty tightly to what's happening in the business on any given day because mm-hmm. I believe that I have to make that happen in order for the ministry to happen. And now, yeah, well, now my fists are really tight. Yeah, so <laughs> just, you know, pry them open. I'm giving you a key, by the way, since you're I so know. Yeah, I know. So, so, drop yeah. them in his hands. Ah, yes, mm-hmm. right. Anna, you got anything that you need to drop? Oh, yeah. Mine is uh, definitely feeling like there is never enough time. And so not prioritizing the things that I want to be prioritizing in my life because mm. I'm always worried about how much time I have. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, just as an act of faith, open the hands, drop them into his hands. I release that from, from my responsibility, mm. turn to your responsibility. 
And then once again, this is thing you might want to sit, you know, That's for a right. while. It's like, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's visceral, it's isn't it? Yeah. It is. It's yeah. really tangible. And then normally the best thing to do is to end it with your hands open again and cupped. Or, you know, what do I need? Mm-hmm. Um, and then take another time. You know, if you do this for 20 minutes, seven, 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 um, you don't have to do it for that long. But, um, and then when there is that sense to put it there. And then for me, and I'll just say this is, you know, what so often happens is either the thing that I just, at that time, or in the past that I've dropped into his hands, he'll drop back into my hands. Oh, mm-hmm. fascinating. But now it's covered with love and it's his promise that I've got your back, I'm mm. for you, I'm with you. you don't have, you're don't. you not doing this alone. Fascinating. Uh, I'm going to put my the wind of my spirit behind your doing. I'm commissioning to do this very thing that you were <clears throat> trying to do in, under your own control. Now do it under my control and with my with my power and my blessing and my spirit and confidence that I'm going to I'm going to make the business do well without you having to hyper focus mm-hmm. on it. That I'm mm-hmm. going to I'm going to just be able to multiply your time in ways and to help you to make decisions. It's it's just a very powerful and just a way to turn that relationship into yeah. something more interactive and more relational than something that's just intellectual. The intellectual is important. I'm not minimizing it. Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't say learn my teachings, and and they didn't tell the Jewish boys, which had been girls too. But you know, you have to memorize the entire Torah. Those things weren't important, right? But they're foundational to relationship. Yeah. Well, and you say it so well in your book that Torah is supposed to be written on your hearts at the end of the day, and this is this is I think how that gets integrated. Well, I. I got to give that one another A, unfortunately, oh, yeah, uh, and on that one. Well, I think uh, as if we wrap this up, and Gary, thank you for this. This is this has been brilliant. Um, Anna, you started this podcast by referencing Gary as a near mythological creature, and so I've been going through <laughs> my mind. So I'll give you a few, like maybe examples, and you have to pick from one of them. I'm oh, thinking fun. like, okay. so I'm thinking like um, unicorn, um, minotaur, um, maybe phoenix. Uh, and then I, the one that I picked is Sasquatch. That's, that's what I'm going to use. I don't really know why, but I, you know, you can use none of the above or you can pick a different mythological creature. I was going to say, see, my favorites are always the, like the creatures of the depths of the ocean. Kind oh, of thing. Like okay. I, I tend to gravitate towards like the, the mystical beings of the sea, which is the very like Celtic folklore thing. Yeah, again. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of had this like vague sea creature sort of. So like Kraken, mermaid, head. like something in, the, in that something whole category. Something a little less like weird. A little, <laughs> a little more like you would see it and be like wow rather than like oh no <laughs> okay well thank you uh, fair enough i love it well it's truly gary thanks for this and looking forward to many more conversations ahead but just so fun that we had a chance to be in studio together like this so annie you want to wrap us up sure this has been the deeper magic podcast i'm anna say bye gary bye gary say bye peter bye peter we'll talk to you guys soon thanks everybody Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. 